I've been thinking about this past year, um, things that I've seen, um, not only in our culture, but among us here, uh, two main things that I've seen. Uh, the first is uh, been a lot of fear. And uh, it's a shame to see that, but uh, there's been a lot of fear. And there's been a lot of anger, a lot of resentment, you know, uh, over the, the lockdowns and other things. Um, changes in our culture, things that uh, trouble us. And I'm hoping that today's message uh, will be helpful for you uh, in dealing with both those things. Um, fear and anger are two sides of the same coin. We tend to get angry because we get afraid. And uh, when we're afraid, it's, uh, the fear kind of overcomes us, and uh, we don't know how to deal with it. Uh, we have to remember who God is and uh, who we are to God. And in that, I'm hoping that uh, today as you hear the message on Zechariah 12 and 13, there's your plug, um, that uh, you'll be encouraged by this. You know, it's a new year. It's 2022. I'll continue to write my checks 2021 for the next, you know. All you people do electronic, you, you get to miss out on this stuff, you know. But for the rest of us, you know, they write it out by hand. We keep writing the, the wrong year in. Um, at New Year's, what do we do? Well, it, it's a time to look back at where we were a year ago. And uh, it's where we're at today. We look at that as well. We take stock. And we look forward to what lies ahead for us and for those that we love. The book of Zechariah is kind of like that. The prophet has revealed in great detail the rocky relationship that the people of God have had with their Heavenly Father. Not just in their day, but across the ages. He reveals the current state of their relationship, and, and he reveals some of the things that he has ahead for them in the future. God has ahead for the people of God in the future. And some of those things are going to be good, and some of those things are going to be bad. Some of those things are going to happen in a lifetime, and some of those things won't. When you get older in life, you begin to think about things that are going to happen after you're gone. Uh, the legacy that you left, uh, what are your kids going to be doing? Uh, how are they going to continue on? And so we look back so that we can look forward, and we look forward so that we can live today. You know, along the way, in reading Zechariah, I was trying to figure out how can I organize this thing. Jason uh, did a good job letting us know, don't expect it to be linear. Don't expect it to be chronological. It's not... <laughs> so on your handouts today, there are three points, and uh, those three points, uh, you'll, you'll say, well, which one is he on now? And the answer is, yep. Uh, so it, we're going to bounce back and forth between one and the other and the third. I'm sorry about that, but that's just the way it was written. I can't help it. You know, I, I tried to reorganize it. It just didn't work. Uh, <laughs> my wife was laughing because I, I sent out four drafts this week. You know, I said, well, that one doesn't work. Never mind. You know, here's a, no, no, not that. How about, no. Anyway, we're going to discover uh, three promises that uh, have showed up. Um, we haven't really taken time to identify them, but I think there are three promises of God, three hopes on which to build a life. Hard to build a life on despair. You build a life on hope. And there are three encouragements to stay the course in tough times. All of us need that. Times are tough. Times are going to get tougher. It's always been that way. Uh, we need to get ready for it. So I'm going to put up those three promises for you. Number one, God still loves you even as he disciplines you. We, we say that to our kids. They don't believe us. <laughs> but God still loves you even as he disciplines you. God sent Israel into captivity for 70 years in Babylon. For what? Well, to discipline them. For what? Well, for their rebellion, rebel, <laughs> their rebellion and their sin. And he removed their earthly blessings. He took all that stuff away from them. He broke the staff of his favor. We heard about that last week. 
but he never stopped loving them. Even as he did that, he never stopped loving them. He never withdrew his covenant from them. And the same is true for us today. God will never withdraw his covenant from us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. And so on that day, he will establish a new and a better covenant in Jesus Christ and extend it to the Gentiles. Zechariah is letting us know that long before that would ever take place. Number two, God will avenge you against those who harm you. When we get angry, we generally want to uh, exercise a little bit of payback. You know, uh, we'd like to exercise a little bit of revenge of ourselves, uh, on our, for ourselves against uh, some other people. So we, we say nasty things. We do nasty things. We ignore things that we know they want. You know, just little digs that we give as part of that. But the truth is God will avenge you against those who harm you, so don't do that. God worked through foreign nations in the case of Israel to chastise his people, to provide for them like orphans. Really? Babylon took them off into captivity. They didn't starve to death there. They fed them, they housed them, they clothed them. He took care of them through those foreigners, like orphans. And even to restore them to the land, in the end, he gave that back to them. But there were other nations, enemy tribes, that surrounded Jerusalem, and they harassed the people of God. They stole from them, they even killed them. They invaded the land that God promised to Abraham. Israel couldn't defend themselves. But guess what? God could. They couldn't avenge themselves, but on that day, God will. Their enemies won't be able to hide from the Lamb, from His wrath. Number three, God will shepherd and preserve you alive forever. God will shepherd and provide you alive forever. As we heard last time, all of Israel's earthly shepherds failed them. Every one of them. They didn't care for them. They didn't seek the young. They didn't heal the maimed or nourish the healthy, but they devoured them instead. God is not a man that he should lie. God is not like that. Christ is not a hireling who doesn't care about the flock. He's the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. And yet in this world, and yet in this world, we'll have trouble. That's good news? This is the new year. Give me some good news. That's the good news. In this world, you will have trouble. The question is, what are we going to do about it? How are we going to live with it? How are we going to endure in the midst of it? Whatever the reason for why we undergo some of this stuff, this trouble, it may be to discipline us, it may be to punish others, it may simply be because we live in a fallen world. Lots of reasons why things go bad. But whatever the reason, God will use these trials to remove our dross to strengthen our resolve, as David was castigating us this morning. You know, your New Year's resolution, how many of those made resolutions you really have no intention of keeping? But each time that we fail to keep those resolutions, it's a new day with new mercies, with new forgiveness available. And so come before God. He's going to strengthen our resolve and he's going to beautify our soul. Why do we undergo these things? For those three reasons and many others. He uses them to draw us near to him. God uses adversity to draw us near to him. Why? Because there's no place else to turn. And he's going to conform us to the image of his son. How does he do that? Through adversity. He's got to bust up the rock so he can reshape it. And that's a painful process. I will refine them, says God. Refine them as one refined silver and test them as gold is tested. And in that crucible, when we can't see a way out, we learn to exercise our faith in Christ. It's when we don't know what tomorrow brings that we have to exercise our faith. 
It's when we don't have any solutions that we exercise our faith. It's when we can't see straight that we have to exercise our faith. We learn to exercise our faith in Christ, trusting in his promises. Trusting in his promises. We hope in what we cannot see. Isn't that the essence of faith? We hope in what we cannot see. We hope in Christ today, even as we look forward to that day when he returns. And our hope is not deferred. When we studied Proverbs, it said that hope deferred makes the heart sick. But our hope is not deferred. Our hearts are not sick. It's not insecure just because it's not fulfilled yet. We have a sure and a present hope in a future reality. A sure and present hope right now today. We have hope today in that reality that's coming tomorrow. That's because the promises of God are guaranteed by the Spirit of God. That's because our redemption is already paid in full with the blood of Christ. We're heirs and co-heirs with Christ today. We are justified and sanctified and wholly pleasing in the sight of God today. Not at some future point, right now, today. And we don't have to wait to see if God's going to fulfill his, his promises for us. Take Abraham. You offered up Isaac in faith, concluding that the promise of God was secure. Well, in what way was it secure? I'd just like to take you, you know, put your son on the altar, you know, and get out the knife and, you know, I'll, do you trust me? <laughs> but he concluded the promise of God was secure. He knew that God was able to raise his son, even if he had to take his son's life. He knew that God could raise his son even from the dead. Hebrews 11.5. We can hope with full assurance that all of God's promises will be fulfilled on that day. This phrase on that day is repeated 10 times in today's text. You've heard us say time and again, if it gets repeated, it's probably something you should pay attention to. In those days refers to a coming judgment to be executed soon. That's another phrase we find in scripture. 70 or 80 times it shows up. But that's to a coming judgment to be executed soon. That's in those days. But on that day refers either to the advent of Christ, which was still 500 years away, for Zechariah, or refers to the final day of judgment at the end of time, on that day. And we can speak of both of those days as the same day, because the return of Christ is as secure as the coming of Christ, which has already taken place. It's not iffy. Each time that on that day is used, it applies either to God's people, who long for that day, or refers to God's enemies who dread that day. But both are going to happen on that day. Jesus said, an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear my voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. On that day, Christ will return, we say in the Apostles' Creed, to judge the quick and the dead. Zechariah is ringing the bell of hope for the people of God, and he's sounding the alarm for the enemies of God. He's doing both of those in the same breath. On that day, the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe, said Christ. In other words, I am the fulfillment of all those promises. I am here on that day. That day has come. So, okay, let's look closer at these three hopeful promises. If you haven't yet, turn to Zechariah 12. Number one, God still loves you even as he disciplines you. Zechariah 12.1, the burden or the prophecy of the word of God concerning Israel. 
Thus declares the Lord who stretched out the heavens and founded the earth and formed the spirit of man within him. What's going on? What is God saying? God declares himself the creator and the author of life. What should you take away from that? What I'm about to share with you, you probably ought to believe. I am the creator of life. I am the author of life. When I tell you something, it's going to happen. That's the promises of God. Israel here represents the covenant people of God. Not the nation state, this little in the Middle East. It's, it's not, no. Israel represents the covenant people of God of all ages. It refers to the covenant promise made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob was given a new name, if you remember. He wrestled with the angel all night long, and he was given a new name, and his new name was Israel. It means he wrestled with God. What did he wrestle with God for? He wrestled with God for a blessing. And when he received the blessing, that blessing was secure. And so too for us. Judah, on the other hand, is the territory of Judah, where Jerusalem is located, physical place, where the temple of God sits on Mount Zion. But it also, it also represents the royal line of David, through which Christ will come, the Holy One of God, King of Israel, King of kings, Lord of all. It's coming through this line. So both of these are mentioned the covenant and the king. The covenant and the kingly promise are linked four times in chapter 12. For a reason. <laughs> yeah, well, you see these things showing up multiple times. Pay attention. Get the antennas up. Recall God's promise to David about Christ. I will set up your seed after you. It's from 2 Samuel 7, 12. I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom, how long? Forever. Don't think that applies to Solomon. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. Despite his correction, God still loves Israel. He will establish a kingdom for Israel. That's what this promise is, is all about. And he's going to establish that kingdom under his son. That's the promise. But what's this cup of staggering? Prophecy. You've heard me say before, prophecy shimmers. You can't quite tell whether it's present, past, or future. You can't quite tell who the characters are in the story, in the images that uh, you see, and it kind of plays with your head. But this cup of staggering is confusing because we've just heard about this promise that God is making to deliver a king and to make a kingdom for Israel. What is this cup of drunkenness? And how does it apply to the surrounding peoples? It seems that God has made his people into a lightning rod of sorts. I don't know if you've ever looked at yourself that, uh, that way as, as sort of a lightning rod that attracts opposition. But God has made his people into a lightning rod of sorts. To oppose Israel, the visible apple of his eye, is to oppose the invisible God. To oppose us as the visible people of God is to oppose the invisible God. You ever thought of yourself that way? As God's representative, as God's lightning rod, as, as the one that, uh, like the sword of Christ, divides the good from the bad, the right from the wrong, and yet that's who we are. His wrath will be drawn to, and it will rain down upon those who mistreat his people. They will stagger like drunks in Zechariah's day. But on that day, on that day, God will judge the nations by how they treat his son and how they treat his son's bride. That's us. 
The wrath of God is coming against all those in all ages who lead God's people into sin and oppression. And so God says this in verse 3. On that day, I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. All who lift it will surely hurt themselves. (laughs) And all the nations of the earth will gather against it. Now, the wording is reminiscent of the words of Christ. He's the stumbling stone. He's the rock of offense, isn't he? And we belong to him. That's the key part. And we belong to him. It says in Matthew, I'm sorry, in Mark 9.42, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin or to stumble, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And there you see up on the screen what a millstone looks like. If you were to lie down on that, your head might not reach the top of it and your feet reach the bottom. Those are big, heavy stones used for grinding wheat into flour. So what he's saying is don't attack God's people. Don't do that. Don't lure them into sin. Don't don't do that. Don't abuse them. They belong to God Almighty. That's who you are. You belong to God Almighty. And He is a jealous God. This is God's promise of compassion for His people. But it's also His pledge of protection against their enemies. Again, two things will happen on that day. The people of God will be upheld. And the enemies of God will be thrown down, scattered to the four winds. That's the image that's going to be given in verse 4. On that day, declares the Lord, I will strike every horse with panic and its rider with madness. But for the sake of the house of Judah, I will keep my eyes open when I strike every horse of the peoples with blindness. So you can imagine if you have a cavalry and all the horses go nuts, they all scatter in all directions. What do you have? You have chaos. Well, that's what the enemies of God are going to have done to them by God. None escapes God's sight. He will cast them into darkness. We don't have to worry about that. We don't have to go for revenge. God is the avenger. God will take care of that. You can let go of that anger. You can let go of that resentment. You can let go of that bitterness because God's going to handle it in his time and in his way. And it won't be pretty for those that are going to be the recipients of it. And so you can live in peace. And you can let go of all that stuff and enjoy the peace and the grace that God has given to you. Then the clans of Judah shall say to themselves, the inhabitants of Jerusalem have strength through the Lord of hosts, their God. So we just saw what happens to the bad guys. This is what happens to the people of God. Sons of Judah will say to themselves, you know what? The inhabitants of Jerusalem have strength through the Lord of hosts, their God. That's us. We have strength through the Lord of hosts, our God. God is the avenger and God is the deliverer of those who abide in Zion, the city of God. He is the source of our strength. If you thought it was in yourself, you're wrong. Older I get, the more I realize the truth of it. <laughs> I, got a, I shoveled the snow yesterday. I almost died. Was, man, two inches. I don't know if I can handle it. <clears throat> he will strengthen us. That's a promise. And he will enable us to withstand the test. The very test that he brings to us. He'll give us the ability to withstand it. We are the object of God's affections. We are the object of God's affections. But we're also the object of the world's hatred. Both of those can be true at the same time. That's part of our testimony to the world. Huh? (laughs) The fact that we find opposition is part of our testimony to the world. 
as it says in John's Revelation, then the dragon became furious and the woman went off to make war on the rest of her offspring. How's that for a picture? You like that? He went to make war on the rest of her offspring on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Hold to the testimony of Jesus. Why is that dragon out to do in the children of the woman who is the bride, who is the church? Why is he after that? Because we are testifying of our Lord Jesus Christ and like a lightning rod that draws the wrath of the world against us. They don't want to hear it. Why not? Because they dread that day. We long for that day. Now this two-pronged approach is all through chapters 12 and 13. Back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. This war is waged in the heavens as well as on earth. Again, we are a lightning rod attracting the fierce opposition of all those who oppose God. We attract their animosity simply by keeping the commandments of God. <laughs> it really upsets them. To be a moral person really is upsetting to the world. They don't want to hear it. They don't want to see it. They don't want to be compared to it. Even if you are not comparing them, they will compare themselves. And it enrages them. We attract their animosity simply by following Christ. I'm sorry, I don't walk that path. I'm sorry, I don't go there. I don't do those things. Simply our refusal to do that is like a commentary on them. And they resent it royally. And they hate us for it. Our joy provokes their rage. Our peace incites their hatred. Don't be surprised by any of that. This is normal for us as Christians. Verse 6. On that day, I will make the clans of Judah like a blazing pot in the midst of wood, like a flaming torch among sheaves, and they shall devour to the right and to the left all the surrounding peoples, their enemies, while Jerusalem shall again be inhabited in its place in Jerusalem. And the Lord will give salvation to the tents of Judah first, and that glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants. I'm sorry. So that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem may not surpass that of Judah. Huh? <laughs> what difference does it make what order he's going to do it in? Well, the blazing pot refers to the priestly censer. It's the same word. It's only used a couple of times in Scripture. Uh, you remember the priest would, would get a censer. It's a bowl or a pan. Okay, and I, I assume they had tongs, you know, to get those hot embers off the altar and put it into the censer. And they would use that to light fires, and they would use that to purify things. So that's their censer. That's the word that's used here. It's the priestly censer filled with burning coals from the temple altar. Same coals that touch the lips of Isaiah. We are the fire pot that ignites the dead wood. The flames of God's justice will consume the dead trees while we are preserved. Do you burn with the passion of Christ? Do you burn with a love for God? It's like a sensor that consumes everything around it. All of the enemies of God can see that light, can, can feel that heat of your passion for Christ. The Spirit is spoken of as a flame. Remember John said... Uh, I'm going to baptize you with water. He's going to baptize you with fire. That's the fire. That's what we're looking at here. 
Notice that God first saves Judah, then Jerusalem. That way the corrupt leaders in Jerusalem can't take credit for saving the tribes of Judah. Well, we got our act together, so we're going to get all these other people, you know, squared away, and we'll protect them. It's going to begin with us because we're the big guys. We're the important ones here. Recall chapter 11 last week. Evil shepherds were called fallen trees. They were uprooted because they sought their own glory above God's. Jerusalem will be saved and surrounding peoples will be defeated, but it will be by God's hand on that day, not by theirs. This is a statement. I, the Lord your God, have done all this and will do all this. You are in my hand and no one can pluck you out. That's the promise. In chapter 2, we heard that a new Jerusalem was being measured out. Kirk gave us a, a snippet from Revelation this morning. A mighty king would sit on its throne forever. You'll find that in 2 Samuel 7.13, Psalm 45.6, Revelation 4.9. All of those are on the bottom of your handout. That's why we give those to you. So you can take those home and study them. Verse 8, on that day the Lord will protect the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Why? So that the feeblest among them on that day, on that day, shall be like David, who slew the giant. And the house of David shall be like God, like the angel of the Lord going before them. Did I read that right? The house of David shall be like God, just like the angel of the Lord going before them. You're kidding. No. The house of David, the coming king, shall be like God. He is the angel of the Lord who goes before them. The title refers to the Son of God, the second person of the Godhead. We've seen this time and again as we've gone through Zechariah. For God so loved the world that he sent his only Son. He is the firstborn among many brothers and sisters, Paul says. Listen to David's prophetic words and those of Isaiah. Speaking of this day that Zechariah is speaking about. Psalm 89, 29. I will establish his offspring forever and his throne as the days of the heavens. Isaiah 9, 7. Of the increase of his government, just in time for Christmas, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and how long? Forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. God is passionate to do this. God has been passionate to accomplish it in Jesus Christ our Lord. There's a fire for you, and that's a fire we need to carry in our bellies. That's something we need to get downright excited about. So let's return to Zechariah and compare his words to these. Listen to the description of the one they pierced. It's referenced, by the way, in John 19.37. Zechariah 13.9 And on that day I will seek or I will set out to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem against Mount Zion, against my people. That's the one side. What's the other side? That's for God's enemies, but for God's people, on that same day, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. That was us at the communion table this morning. That was David weeping for joy at the table this morning to lead us in that. If that doesn't amaze you, I don't know what will. <laughs> this is 517 B.C., but looking at the description, we can see in it and we can see beyond it because we are Christians living after the advent of Christ. 
We can see the death of God's only Son on the cross to atone for our sins. We can see that in this passage. We can see the new covenant in Christ's blood, which is a better covenant. We can see God's grace and mercy showered down upon us, not wrath. We can see the defeat of Satan and of sin and of death, as we sang about this morning. We can see, if you recall, the bronze serpent lifted up for the healing of the nations. We can see the spirit of grace poured out at Pentecost. That's what that spirit of grace and pleas for mercy is all about. All of that in this passage, all perfectly clear once you understand the gospel. Once you understand the gospel, that's the key that unlocks the treasures of God's word. That's why the world which cannot accept the gospel makes God's word out to be a bunch of nonsense. They can't make head or tails out of it because they don't understand and will not believe the gospel truth. As Kurt said, it makes no sense without Christ at the center of it. So, promise number two. God will avenge you against those who harm you. God will avenge you against those who harm you. This next section at the end of chapter 12 is, well, a little less clear. <laughs> but we'll, we'll see if we can make some sense out of it. Verse 11. On that day, the morning in Jerusalem shall be as great as the morning for Hadad Ramon in the plain of Megiddo. The land shall mourn each family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Nathan by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Levi by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the Shimeonites, Shimeites by itself, and their wives by themselves, and all the families that are left, and all the families that are left, each by itself, and their wives by themselves. Perfectly clear. <laughs> Kurt said, look, it's all clear. Uh, it, it is once you have the key. Okay, and when you know, I, I, I fetched about a while for this to find the key. Uh, I'm sure there was one. I just you know, struggled to find it. Uh, this isn't about the specific individuals named. Whew. It's not about their wives. It's not about the families who are left. Not them in particular. These are representative names. This is about the remnant in general. This is about the mourning of those who remain behind following the purging of the nations and the cleansing of God's people on that day. The church doesn't escape the woes of this world. We're not exempt from God's cleansing hand. Our suffering for Christ's sake is our testimony of his suffering for us. The righteous for the unrighteous. The just for the unjust. I want to draw attention to this repeated phrase, by themselves. It literally says, of themselves according to themselves. Oh, that's easy. I understand. The remnant mourn apart. The remnant mourn apart. They mourn their own. It's personal. It's private. The pain of it, the loss they've experienced, is something that cannot really be shared with others. Even those who have experienced those sort of losses themselves. You know that yourself, don't you? If you've lost a loved one, your neighbor may have lost a loved one and has some sort of concept of what you're going through, but they really don't know your pain. They really don't know your loss. Some of us here have experienced such losses. Others may sympathize with this, but they can't know what we're feeling nor the devastation that we experience. They just can't know. 
There are times of cleansing that God brings upon us. There are times of retribution that God brings upon the world around us that take their tally, that have their loss. And we need to endure that. And the question is how? How do we endure those losses? Specific families are are named here, but who are these people? Their names are preserved. They won't be forgotten. Not on that day. Our God knows each of us by name. That's one reason why the names are listed here. A reminder that God knows each of us by name. He calls us by name. He saves us by name. He restores us by name. Our salvation, our deliverance, and our comfort are personal to us. But think about this. They're also personal to God. They're also personal to God, but especially to Christ who died for us. That's why when we present the gospel, I I tell our, our folks in the evangelism class, the gospel proclamation is personal. It needs to be done face to face. Don't grab a bullhorn, you know, and, and, and drive down the street proclaiming the gospel and think it's going to have the same effect as speaking to someone face to face and sharing with them the truth as you know it. It's personal. And that's what he's telling us here. Isaiah forty nine fifteen. Can a mother forget her nursing child? Can she feel no love for the child she has born? Even if that were possible, I, says God, I would not forget you. I will not forget you. And when you're enduring these trials and these adversities, I have not forgotten. I see it. I am right there with you. I need you to believe that. I'm the creator. I'm the one who gave you life and breath to begin with. I see. I know. I am your comforter. Come to me. Zechariah 12, 11. The morning of Hadad Rahman in the plain of Megiddo. <laughs> okay. I, I, I hear the sounds of the names, but so what? I mean, what's that got to do with the price of tea? Uh, well, here's something for you to consider. That's where good King Josiah was killed by Pharaoh Necho. That's 2 Kings 23 through 29. Josiah stands for, he represents all of the faithful of God who delight in God's word and follow it. That's who he represents. That's the mourning that's going on here. We had someone who followed God and we followed him as he followed God. He imitated God and we imitated him as he imitated God. And he was taken from us. And we mourn that loss. Next follow four named families. David's household. King David was a man after God's own heart. God promised him that his son would sit on David's throne forever. Jesus was greeted in Jerusalem on Palm Sunday as who? The son of David. Nathan's household is mentioned here. Don't get confused. (laughs) This is not the prophet Nathan. There's another one? Uh, Yeah. He's not the one who confronted David, but rather the son of David from whom Zerubbabel descended. I didn't know that. Yeah, it's in one of those genealogies that we scoot right on past. Levi's household is mentioned. These represent the holy priests of God who served him day and night in the temple, who kept the lampstand lit. That's us. The Shimeites. 
No, this isn't Shimei who cursed David and chucked rocks at him. Remember Joab said, can I kill him now? Can I kill him now? And David said, no, 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 this is from God. But that's not, that, not the one. It refers to the grandson of Levi, the priest. Where'd you find that out? It's in those genealogies. That we... And then we have the remnant. All those who are preserved by God. They carry in themselves the good seed of the gospel for the generations to come. That's us. That's us. The four named families, says Luther, who have, have two from the royal line of kings, David and Nathan, and two from the priestly line, Levi and Shimei. Well, that's interesting. One is prominent, one is less so. We are descendants of them all. We here this morning are descendants of them all. A royal priesthood, heirs and co-heirs with Christ, our prophet, priest, and king. And then comes the promise on which we hang all of our hopes for the future. 13.1, on that day there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. You heard a taste of that this morning in the call to worship. That fountain mentioned in Revelation. Christ is that fountain. Christ is that fountain. His blood covers our sins and he cleanses us. That's why he is that fountain. Revelation 21.6 And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. How much it cost? Nothing. You mean it's like by grace? Yeah, yeah. He did it all? Yeah. And he offers it to us for free? Yeah. Why? So that we can be free. Oh, that's kind of deep. Yeah. Zechariah's prophecy then shifts from those who are cleansed of sin, God's people, to those who are themselves the bearers and the purveyors of sin, God's enemies. The land will finally be cleansed of them, Genesis 3.17. Paul said the creation itself yearns to be cleansed from its bondage to corruption and to obtain the liberty of the children of God, Romans 8.21. Well, Zechariah goes ahead and he lists these purveyors of corruption. He names them. And you'll never guess when. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will cut off the names of the idols from the land. The idols are part of the corruption. The idols have to go. Got idols in your life? So that they shall be remembered no more. And also I will remove from the land the prophets and the spirit of uncleanness. And if anyone again prophesies, his father and mother who bore him will say to him, you shall not live, for you speak lies in the name of the Lord. So, are these all prophets? No, these are false prophets. You'll never guess, but most of the New Testament speaks about those false prophets. They show up in the church. They preach a false gospel as false prophets. And you need to take Dr. Lyle's class to find out how to spot those suckers by exercising some critical thinking and listening carefully to what's being said. Because Satan never says outright lies. He's always very subtle. He always lays it up right alongside the truth of God, so it's hard to distinguish one from the other. But we are not like those who get faked out, who get fooled by these things. We are the children of God, and we see the truth, and we understand the truth, and we recognize falsehood for what it is. 
So, if anyone again prophesies, his father and mother who bore him will say to him, You shall not live, for you speak lies in the name of the Lord. And his father and mother who bore him shall pierce him through when he prophesies. <laughs> Don't do that. <laughs> that, that, that. That's for God to do, not for you. As Christ was pierced for our transgressions, they will be pierced for their own transgressions. That's what it's saying. You don't go out and take the law into your own hands. Don't get down that road. Their idols will be forgotten. False prophets, forgotten. The impure spirit or the sinful nature, forgotten. A thing of the past. For behold, all things are new. On that day will be a highway of holiness, and the unclean shall not pass over it. And now comes the last mention of the coming day. Like so much of this book, it contains a strange image. Zechariah 13.4 On that day, every prophet will be ashamed of his vision when he prophesies. He will, not be put on, he will not put on a hairy cloak in order to deceive, but he will say, I am no prophet. No, no, not me. No, no, don't call me one of those. I'm a worker of the soil. I'm just a farmer, man. For a man sold me in my youth, and I was a slave. You know, I had nothing to do. Not my fault. And if one asks him, what are those wounds on your back? He will say, well, those are the wounds I received in the house of my friends. Isn't prophecy fun? Everybody got a clear inkling of what that means? The NLT has a slightly different take on this. It's the translator's interpretation, but it's still helpful. On that day, people would be ashamed to claim the prophetic gift. No one will pretend to be a prophet by wearing prophet's clothes. He will say, I'm no prophet. I'm a farmer. I began working for a farmer as a boy. And if someone asks, well, then what are those wounds on your chest? He will say, I was wounded at my friend's house. Well, okay, that's a little clearer. But what does it mean? <laughs> Whenever reading the Bible, three questions. What does it say? What does it mean? What does it mean to me? So this is one of those, what does it mean? I'm going to go with this. A false prophet has been caught and punished, but he denies his conviction and his visible wounds. Just throwing it out there as something that might help digest this. He's like the man in Jesus' parable who enters the wedding feast and is confronted by the king. Uh, how'd you get in here without a wedding garment? This is from Matthew 22:12. He is not clothed in Christ's robe of righteousness, and he is not healed by Christ's stripes. He still has the stripes on him for all to see. Oh, that makes a little more sense. Yeah. He will be cast into the outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. In other words, you cannot fake your faith in Christ. You cannot fake your faith in Christ. Christ knows those who belong to him. You're not going to fool him. On that day, he will separate the sheep from the goats. And that's a promise. Number three, God will shepherd and preserve you alive forever. Zechariah 13, 7. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd. I have trouble grasping this, that God would do this against his own shepherd. His appointed, anointed shepherd. God is going to do this. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little ones. 
in the whole land, declares the Lord, two-thirds shall be cut off and perish, and one-third shall be left alive. These are the remnant. Verse 9, And I will put this third into the fire, and refine them as one refines silver, and test them as gold is tested. They will call upon my name, and I will answer them. I will say, They are my people. Those in the flames, those in the adversity, those in the fire, those are my people. I see them and I am with them. And they will say, the Lord is my God. And we're back to where we began with the fires that consume those who hate God, who hate his people, who hate the gospel, who are punished for their sins. But those fires of affliction will purify those who belong to God. Those who love God will be purified by those fires. It's like the Son of God in the furnace with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We will be preserved alive forever. William Hendrickson explains it this way. I'll put the quote up on the board for you. Whenever in history the church is faithful to its calling and bears testimony concerning the truth, tribulation is bound to follow. Apart even from this fact, the church is in the world. Accordingly, it suffers along with the world. I thought I got a chance to skate. Didn't I, didn't I get a, you know exempt card? Accordingly, it suffers along with the world. Children of God do not escape the horrors of war, of famine, of pestilence, of pandemics, of death. The church needs these tribulations. It needs both the direct antagonism of the world and participation in the common woes that pertain to this earthly life as a result of sin. The church, too, is sinful. It is in constant need of purification and sanctification. Hard words to hear, but true. The church needs Tribulation. It needs to be tested. It needs to be purified in the refiner's fire. It's God's fire. It's not Satan's fire. It's God's fire. Paul tells us that suffering produces perseverance, Romans 5.3. But in the same passage in verse 8, he ties our suffering to the suffering of Christ. Christ died for the ungodly to demonstrate the love of God toward us. And as we die to self, we demonstrate, we testify of our love toward God. There is purpose in adversity. There is purpose in suffering. It is not whimsical. It is not without effect on us and on those around us. We are united to Christ in all things. We are witnesses to his sufferings and ambassadors in his victory. As he suffered, so shall we. As he was victorious, so are we. We participate in his sufferings as we endure our own sufferings for his sake. 1 Peter 4.13 But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. At some point, we will all find ourselves in the darkness. At some point in our lives, we all find ourselves in the darkness. Suffering with despair, suffering with doubt, suffering physically, suffering emotionally, as Israel did in the days of Zechariah. This is not uncommon to man. In those times, we may doubt everything we once believed. It happens. Even to sound believers, that happens. 
Isaiah says the enemy comes in like a flood and sweeps us away. But who has hold of you? God does. And he won't let go. Isaiah also says that in those times, the spirit of the Lord will lift up a standard against the enemy. The spirit will rally us to his side. He will call to our remembrance all the promises of God which cannot fail. They cannot fail. Today we see and know what Zechariah only hoped for. We here see and know what he only hoped for. And we firmly hope for what is yet to come. But what is yet to come is just as real as we began. Is just as real as the things that have happened. They will be fulfilled on that day. We will be delivered by God. He will slay all our enemies. We will find strength through the Lord of hosts. We are, we are a light to the nations. And God has given us salvation. He protects us that even the weakest among us may slay giants. We are being conformed to the image of his son today. God will pour out on us a spirit of grace and of mercy as we mourn our Savior who was pierced for our sakes. He won't forget our name. He won't forget your name. Christ is a fountain open to us, the water of life, and we will thirst no more. He cleanses us and shames our enemies. He will cast them out when there's, where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth, but he will deliver us. But he will deliver us whole. God reveals Christ to us afresh as he refines us like silver and gold. We will call upon his name and he will answer us. We're learning that in our class on prayer. He will say we are his people and we will say the Lord is my God. Even in the midst of this, I am his and he is mine. On that day, when he was born in the flesh, hope was born anew. On that day when he died, we died with him. And our debt was paid in full. On that day when he rose from the dead, we rose with him and were reborn. And on that day when he returns in glory, we will see him face to face and mourn no more. Zechariah's prophecy speaks to all these events. Until that day comes, draw near to God, who loves you, who loves you. Love Christ sacrificially as he loves you. Live each day in expectation of that day when our good shepherd will return. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your word, living word. We thank you for your promises, solid as the rock. We thank you for your grace and mercy towards us. We thank you that you will never abandon that covenant, that you remain faithful even when we are unfaithful. Oh, thank you, Lord God, for that. If you discipline us, help us to receive that in a way that is a testimony to Christ, a testimony of who is our head, a testimony of who owns us, of who we belong to. May your church stand in those days of adversity, those days of discipline, those days in which the world itself is called to account for the things they have done against Christ, against you, against your church. Oh, Lord God, give us the strength. We need that, and we know that you are the only source of our strength. Make us strong this day and in all the days to come. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.